welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Steph and Nate continue their Q&A about Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm letting our co-host, Steph, ask me questions about my manic obsession with Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones. Steph, take it away. Hey, all right. So when we finished last week, we were talking about Anita Pallenberg and how she broke it off with Brian Jones. And we got through that part and how she ended up with Mick, uh, excuse me, with Keith Richards. So And kind of Mick. And kind of Mick, too. <laughs> or briefly Mick. Exactly. So if you would finish up with Anita Pallenberg and tell us where she ended up, because she was a really important part of this whole story. Yeah, and Anita's uh, yet another one of these people that was a casualty of the Rolling Stones experience. Um, the breakup with Brian wasn't perfectly clean. Like, they certainly made a clean exit of Morocco, and the whole crew ditched him cold. But because she had a movie coming out that he had done the soundtrack for, it was nominated at Con. And or shown at Con, and because the Stones wanted to do a European tour in '67, um, she it's alleged from various people that she promised Brian they'd get back together if he would do the tour. Um, they appeared together at Con, um, but once you know, every time they got together again, they would fight, fist fight. And and Brian did do the tour, and we'll have uh, some tracks from that tour. And and it's interesting because you know he he hurt his hand in late '66, and by '68 '69, or definitely by '69, by all accounts, he either couldn't or wouldn't play guitar anymore. But in '67, you can hear him playing guitar um, on the on the live bootlegs that exist. But that's a side point. And then Anita uh, goes on to make performance. Uh, directed by Donald Camel with Mick. I think we've talked about it. And they ended up having sex on camera. Uh, and, uh, and What? Yes. And and this was something that was not unheard of uh, in this era. Um, Donald Sutherland had sex with Julie Christie on camera during the making of Don't Look Now a few years later. The um, footage in the movie performance as it was released is pretty PG rated, but supposedly there was a bootleg version of the sex scene that was widely distributed in the 60s. I've never seen it. It also supposedly had a extra bonus bit of footage of Brian when he was dressed up as Flossie, the the wave, the military woman. When when the, all the stones dressed and dragged for the single cover of Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby, Standing in the Shadows, and during the shooting of that, Brian pulled up his dress and wanked in front of the camera. And supposedly Mick Jagger still delights in showing that footage to people at private parties, allegedly. But back to performance. And so, you know, Keith was so heartbroken and shattered. He literally wrote Gimme Shelter about the experience of sitting in his limo outside the film set, which he refused to step on. Uh, foot on uh, while Mick and Anita made love uh, during the shooting of performance. Um, but he managed to, you know, swallow his pride and, and, and remain 
not just amicable, but quite close to Mick uh, afterwards. But it, it definitely hurt him. And and that's when the period of his real heroin addiction starts. And then Anita and Keith uh, married, had uh, multiple children together, starting with Marlon. And, and Marlon was blonde as a baby. And people would always comment how much he looked like Brian Jones. And there was some speculation he was Brian Jones's child. That's been debunked. He grew up to look just like Keith. But it definitely added to the aura of grief and guilt and death around the Stones camp. And also Anita developed a sort of pathological habit of staying up all night and putting pictures of Brian up all over their bedroom walls. And then in the morning, feeling sorry and tearing him down and just deeply unhealthy relationship. They, they go to Paris as tax tax exiles or go to France. They lived in the South of France, Nicolette, uh, to record exile on main street, uh, become complete junkies. Um, as the seventies go on, there's more multiple tragedies and, and I, I, I'm not an expert on this period of the stones. Um, but it's known that at one point they were arrested in Jamaica. And I believe by various accounts that she ended up, um, at some point being game raped by Jamaicans and, and arrested. And I'm not sure she was raped in jail as well. Um, at another point, a young man, I think he was 17 years old, a, a boy, uh, was found dead in her bed uh, by suicide, I think by gunshot. Um, they lost a child a few days after it was born. There's a live recording of Keith playing uh, the night after his baby died, and you can hear it in his playing, uh, just the grief and agony that they were both going through. After Keith was busted in Canada in 78. I think Anita was arrested too. I could be wrong about that. They did split and he essentially kept her on retainer for the rest of her life, partly some say as a way to keep her quiet, but also because he cared for her and, and wanted to take care of her. Um, but yeah, but Anita paid and paid and paid. Um, the, the black queen of 1966, 67, 68 was, not the same woman in the 70s and definitely in the 80s and 90s. I, I think she she ultimately kicked at drugs and there's lots of photos of her in her older age uh, living well. She was still friendly with Marianne Faithful and um, hopefully uh, I'm looking forward to reading her biography and, and finding out more about her later life. But it was it was a hard road. There's also accounts of, of Keith beating the crap out of her in, in a limo. Um, and I'm sure that wasn't the only occasion. So, uh, you know, all of the stones were violent with their women at various points, or at least the three principal stones. Mick seems to have been an aberration. I talked about the, the, the beating he gave Marian Faithful after a concert in Rome, but very atypical for Mick, who by all accounts is a, a really good family man and, and a good husband. Well, a bad husband, <laughs> but a good father. Mm-hmm. And then Keith, uh, wasn't regarded as abusive, but I think I think that was because of the standards of the time that it was just seen as, you know, if Keith Richards wants to punch his wife, well, Keith Richards is going to punch his wife, but that's, you know, obviously not okay. So that's, that's where Anita ended up. All right. Now, once Anita and Brian split, who does Brian end up with? I, I know he goes through like a series of women, but there's one in particular that stands out, Nico. Talk talk to us a little bit about Nico and the people that he ended up with after Anita. Okay. There there were um three or four principal women he was involved with. Nico he'd already had his fling with in sixty-five, but okay. in sixty-seven, he goes to the Monterey Pop Festival with Andrew Lou Goldham, ironically, uh, his bitter enemy and who's already on the outs with the Stones, but Oldham was one of the key planners of the Monterey Pop Festival. He was on the board of directors along with John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas and Lou Adler, the great record producer, and he helped. Uh, he's the reason Jimi Hendrix and the Who were on the bill. And uh, Brian and Nico were kind of the star couple of Monterey. I assume they slept together during this period, but I, I, I've, it's not confirmed to me. Uh, that they did. They had slept together previously and had a deeply sadomasochistic relationship. Um, 
some of the details of which I'm not even I, 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 <laughs> just not podcast friendly, but they engaged in some pretty extreme sadomasochistic stuff involving pins and needles and, and her private parts. But she loved Brian, um, even though, you know, he he apparently raped her and sodomized her against her will and all these different things. But she she found it exciting and, and fun. So <laughs> She also had uh, passionate affairs with Jim Morrison and Iggy Pop and obviously Lou Reed, probably John Cale as well, the Velvet Underground, and Jackson Brown, uh, who wrote songs for her. So she she definitely racked up some uh, stars of her own. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and Brian was kind of the prince of Monterey Pop. If you see pictures of him, he's wearing this completely outlandish golden robes with furs and there's pictures of him and Jimi Hendrix walking around the grounds and pictures of him and Nico hand in hand uh, watching the shows. He introduced Jimi uh, Hendrix at the show. And um, apparently there was some kind of vicious STP going around, which is a kind of hallucinogenic drug that lasts like 36 hours and is not a pleasant trip. But Brian took it and, and shrugged it off. Pete Townsend talks about you know the nightmares and the horror of that. But for Brian apparently it's just another day uh at 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 the zoo um and it's it's known that skip spence of moby grape which was the hot next big thing band a band that had five singer songwriters that had triggered this huge record company bidding war that columbia won skip was watching brian jones very closely and modeling himself on brian jones and within months skip spence had become deeply psychotic and attacked uh his attempted to attack his bandmates with a fire axe and ended up in, in Bellevue um, Mental Hospital. So Brian led many people down the primrose path there. But back to his, his females. Let me stop you for just a moment, okay. if I could. We do need to go ahead and cue up our first song, which okay. we're going to have two different people play this song. So tell us a little bit why you chose Mercy Mercy. Who is singing it and... Yeah. So the original was by Don Covey, who was, um, I believe, on Atlantic. He's a great soul singer and songwriter and also a good guitarist. On this particular track, it's him, one of his regular guitarists and Jimi Hendrix, who at this point was going as Jimmy James. And Jimmy plays this very Curtis Mayfield influenced beautiful delicate guitar figure to introduce the song and then we'll go to the rolling stones version of the song where it's keith and brian kind of you can tell that they built their approach off of what jimmy had played uh for don covey and covey is playing on it too off, off the guitar attack on mercy mercy but the approach couldn't be more different it's jimmy hendrix's and version is delicate and light and beautiful, very much kind of like Little Wing, very influenced by Curtis Mayfield of the Impressions. What Keith and Brian do to this song is like what the Droogs and A Clockwork Orange did to to anybody that was unfortunate enough to run run across them. They just curb stomp this shit. So uh, listen to Don Covey's Mercy Mercy and then a little bit of the Rolling Stones version of Mercy Mercy. have both versions of Mercy Mercy. Let's go ahead and talk about Andrew Lugoldum a little bit. 
Don't. Actually, finish your story with who we Let's talk about with. Brian's women yes. because there were several and they were important. Yes. So immediately upon uh, Anita leaving him for Keith, he takes up with Linda Keith, who had been Keith Richards' probably first true love. He's the woman – she's the woman that Keith wrote Ruby Tuesday for. And that's why Marianne Faithful says Brian wrote the melody, but Keith wrote all the lyrics. Mick, Mick has – always said that, that that he had nothing to do with the creation of ruby tuesday other than singing on it and so linda keith was somebody who was very near and dear to keith richards and there's multiple allegations that she and brian jones had had assignations throughout keith's relationship with her um and, and remember keith was a very innocent sort of person not somebody he was not a, a debauched sex addict like like uh, Bill Wyman and Brian, or all four of the Beatles for that matter, or like Mick Jagger later became. Um, he was a pretty sensitive one-woman man. And so this was obviously a cheap shot just to try to get back at Keith, or who knows? I mean, Brian was endlessly needy. But we know that Linda Keith uh, was attempted suicide in Brian's flat, and we have some letters that he wrote to her um, that are apologetic and manipulative and very strange and interesting to read. I recommend tracking those down if you're interested in it. But that was, you know, a tragic uh, side run. And then, and then he also took up with Suki Potier, who had been in the car with Tara Brown. And Tara Brown, as we've said many times, uh, was the Guinness Fortune heir who died in a car wreck at age 21 when he took LSD and was speeding through London in a sports car. She was in the car with Tara when he died. Tara was one of Brian Jones' best friends. He, uh, Tara is also the inspiration for John Lennon's A Day in the Life. And Brian and Suki took up, and she was yet another one of these blondes who looked just like him. And um, there's a, a horrific story of one of Brian's return trips to Morocco. He wanted to record the local musicians there, and he ultimately did succeed in making a whole album uh, with the Jujuka musicians up in the mountains. Um while he was there, uh, Christopher Gibbs, who is a, an art dealer and society figure, very close to Robert Fraser, who was the art dealer that was busted uh, with Keith and Mick, and he was holding heroin when when they, the Redlands bust happened. But Christopher Gibbs avoided that, but went to Morocco with Brian and Suki and uh, engineer George Chance. I'm not sure how to say the guy's name. It's an odd spelling. But at one point, Brian calls Christopher and asks him to come to his room, and he has clearly savagely beaten Suki, and he's asking Christopher, can you call an ambulance for her? And Christopher Gibbs is like, no, but you can, and you will right now. And apparently it hadn't even occurred to Brian that he could do it for himself. Um, so that's you know typical Brian Jones awfulness. Uh, but then one of the big stories from that trip is that they go up into the mountains to to see the master musicians of Shizuka, who are at least as late as the 1960s had maintained their pagan rituals and pagan music. And this music is dedicated to Pan, the the Greek and Greco-Roman god of nature and madness, um, who Stanley Booth you know infamously famously said. What he saw in Brian's eyes was panic in the sense of the great god Pan uh, in, a, in an aroused and enraged mood. But they're there. Suki's recovered. Um, they're having this big feast with with the Arabs. And this goat is brought forth. And he's got these – it's like a white furred goat, almost blonde. And he's got these fringes of hair going into his eyes. And – Brian sees this and is transfixed and he just keeps going, that's me, that's me. And the goat's then taken and killed and eaten uh, and Brian ate of the goat. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's just become this sort of fable. And he's supposedly still kind of worshipped uh, by the master musicians of Shizuka. Um, there's still legends of the Br the British blonde god who came and took their music to the world so uh you know weird weird heavy stuff and then um finally he was with a woman named anna wolin i'm sure there were other many other women he was with in this period but anna wolin was the one who lived with him at cotchford farm winnie the pooh's house uh in his final weeks and was there the night he drowned in the pool not much is known about her she was young and swedish and 
uh, fled the country. She's talked to some people about what happened that night, but her accounts are not generally trusted. Um, it's believed she was pretty frightened by what she had seen and by the people around the Stones organization. And uh, anyway, so those those are the women of Brian Jones Post Anita Pallenberg. All right. So I wanted to talk, talk to you a little bit about Andrew Lou Goldham, but I think I'm going to backtrack for a second. And I want to ask you some basic questions real quick here. Was the Rolling Stones music and songwriting, um, was it more important before or after Brian Jones? That's a very tough question. They were enormously popular and culturally significant while Brian was in the band. I mean, you know, they had massive, massive hits in England. Uh, by six, by late 63, they were the number two band uh, in the land after the Beatles. By 65, they're the n- number two band in the world after the Beatles because of the enormous success of Satisfaction. Um, the Aftermath album is widely seen as a classic, but there's five albums the Stones made that are considered, you know, the, their ultimate peak. And Brian only played, only contributed significantly to the first one, Beggar's Banquet. He's barely audible on a couple of tracks on Let It Bleed. Then Mick Taylor joins the band and they make Sticky Fingers uh, and Exile on Main Street. So that's the four, the four Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street. Those are the generally recognized as their greatest works. Um, you know, some girls in the Ronnie Wood period has a lot of advocates, but I don't think anybody at this point is saying that they were matching their peaks uh of the of the early mick taylor era with um I, you really should call it the jimmy miller era he's a producer who came in after andrew Lou Goldham left and produced uh, all the albums from beggar's banquet through goat's head soup and uh and was left a ruined junkie uh like so many people like mick taylor was was uh by the time he quit the stones in 1974 he'd gone from a fresh-faced straight-edged 20-year-old to a pretty ravaged junkie who never and it's not clear how much he wanted to be a rock star but he did put out one big solo album well-funded and promoted solo album but and he played with jack bruce and different things but he never really established a significant solo career and and it often seems like he was left a burnout husk. Um, yeah. So does that answer your question or? Yeah, I figured it would be a tough one. Brian Jones played so many different instruments and he could go out and this is by multiple accounts and just pick up something he'd never played. And inside a few hours, he was playing it and playing it well. Prince was also like that. Was Brian Jones a little bit like Prince in that regard? No, because Prince was a virtuoso who put in the hours mm. and developed his talent, whereas Brian was somebody who was so gifted musically that things came very easy to him. And one of his gifts was to figure out shortcuts and easy ways to do things. Um, and so he never mastered any of those instruments. And um, you can really hear it in 1968, when they go back to Becker's banquet and Keith has really stepped up his guitar playing and Brian just hasn't. And, um, although I think, you know, his contributions on jumping Jack flash are, are integral to the song and, and a big part of what make it unique His shaky, wobbly, feeble playing, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything he, he developed. So he never became, you know, a, a true virtuoso like Prince and Prince obviously was a great songwriter and, producer and you know very satisfied i don't know that he was satisfied but but fulfilled as an artist and a creator and brian jones was never never uh happy with anything he did uh, I, th- I think it came too easily to him and and it was too easy to dabble and try a new instrument or something and then after he hurt his hand um his guitar playing just basically fades away or broke his wrist rather um so i i, I I think he probably had the raw talent. I think he could have been a songwriter, I think, in almost any other band. I mean, even if he had just gotten credit for the contributions he did make to Rolling Stones songs. I mean, under modern circumstances, if you have a song like The Last Time that's built around a riff, the guy who wrote the riff would also get songwriting credit. It's highly likely he wrote the melody to Paint It Black on sitar before Mick added the vocals and followed that melody line. 
you know, his contributions to Lady Jane, et cetera. And, and, and again, Ruby Tuesday, um, I, I, th- I think had he not been such a neurotic individual and had he not had such a conflicted relationship with Keith and Mick, um, he probably could have become a songwriter to some degree. He just needed somebody to structure his ideas and in, in, into song form. And so it's also, I think movie soundtracks, if you can get a hold of the DVD of, of the movie uh, he did the soundtrack for, for Anita Pallenberg, it's quite interesting to hear what he could do on his own. Um, some quite interesting things, but, but and it's not Stone's caliber. He wasn't a great, lost songwriter of the Rolling Stones or anything, but he definitely contributed and they definitely drained him dry. Just, you know, Ry Cooter's on the record calling them vampires. Like he, he came in on the scene in 68 when Keith refused to play on memo from Turner or to, or help Mick co-write it. That was going to be the theme song for the performance movie. And Ry Cooter ended up coming in and playing this great slide guitar part. And Ry Cooter claims that like the riff to Honky Tonk Women was something he was playing. And that that there's a whole album, a whole bootleg album called Jamming with Edward, I believe, of of the Stones minus Keith playing with Ry Cooter. And Cooter says that he'd been playing with them for a couple weeks. And then one day he comes in the studio and he hears tapes of his playing and Keith's in there with his guitar copping the licks and Honky Talk Women was allegedly one of those licks. So, <laughs> and Mick Taylor never got any songwriting credit either. Although there are multiple songs that's widely believed he co-wrote, like Ventilator Blues, um, and many songs that he played on that Keith c- didn't play on at all. So uh, that was a perpetual habit of them being sort of creative vampires and personal vampires. I mean, the the trail of bodies left in the wake of the Stones is is pretty staggering. All right, so that's going to bring us to our sponsor break. So we'll be right back in a few moments, and we will be talking about what the other Stones thought of Brian Jones when we be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So let's talk about Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts for a second Tell me what they thought of Brian Jones. Well, it's interesting. Bill Wyman has kind of positioned himself as the protector of Brian Jones's legacy 
post-mortem. They were never really that close in life. The only things they had in common were an interest in science fiction and an obsessive uh, interest in groupies. And Brian was famously cruel to Bill. Um, initially, when Bill auditioned for the band, Brian and Keith wouldn't even talk to him, made fun of him to his face, called him names right, to, you know, right in front of him. Um, but Bill for whatever reason, recognized that the Stones had something going on and, and he wanted to be in on it. And so he put up with all that crap. And, you know, there's uh, footage of Brian Jones ashing a cigarette in Bill's hair at a press conference. And then and then Mick thoughtfully pours the fire out with a Coke on Bill's head. And, <laughs> you know, Brian and Mick are just laughing gleefully as Brian ashes his cigarette, you know, uses Bill's, Bill Wyman's head as an ashtray. And Bill Wyman's book, which is excellent, um, centers Brian's story and it ends with Brian's death. I think it might go up to Altamont, but, but, um, that's where the story kind of ended for Bill. And he quit the band in the, in the early nineties to retire and, uh, has spoken up for, you know, tried to remind people that Brian was the founder of the band because uh, Keith's gotten more and more revisionist over the years and has said things recently, like it was Ian Stewart's band. Ian Stewart started the band, which is just patently not true. And it's the kind of thing that, Ian Stewart wouldn't let Keith say when Keith was alive. Ian Stewart was a very honest guy, although he hated Ryan's guts and loved Keith. As tr far as Charlie Watts, Charlie has been pretty honest about Brian being a pretty awful person, hard to get along with, hard to be around. Um, but he also felt a lot of pity for Brian and felt sorry for what, you know, it's on the record saying, it, you know, I felt sorry for what we'd done to him, which was take the only thing he had away from him, which was being in a band. And, you know, Charlie went along with Mick and Keith when they went to Cotford Farm to fire Brian. And um, he never, he claimed he didn't remember the details of what happened other than it was deeply unpleasant. Mick's also said it was very unpleasant and sad to do that. And, and Mick was tearstruck uh, when Brian, when the news came that Brian died. And, and, you know, there's accounts of Mick crying. They had a concert planned for the week of Brian's death and they turned it into a celebration of Brian. And Mick, by all accounts, was, was in tears before that show. And even Keith uh, in the Crossfire Hurricane documentary that came out a couple years ago, they asked him why he didn't go to Brian's funeral. And he was like, well, my people don't go to funerals. My, my dad didn't have one. We just buried him under an oak tree and he's an oak tree now. My mom told me, don't you make a fuss over me, boy. And he said, I won't mom. And, uh, and then he said, you know, the burying and the shovels and all that, that, that didn't mean anything to me, but Hyde Park, that was the funeral and Hyde Park, half a million people turned up. And so it's kind of touching to see Keith, that that obviously meant something to Keith that that they celebrated Brian in a big way, even though he, you know, Brian scarred Keith probably worse and more than anyone, um, and and he's been pretty free with unkind things to say about Brian in the last few years. Talk about the time Brian and Keith actually teamed up to save the Stones. Yeah, so I mean that's that's one thing that that it's hard to keep in mind when you read about all these vicious intra-band conflicts it's easy to forget that they were seen at the time as this incredibly tight unit nobody had any idea like in 1968 when stanley booth went to london to report on brian jones's second trial he had no idea that brian and keith and mick weren't thick as thieves and and he said you know he describes the moment when keith and mick walked into the courtroom as being like frank and jesse james walking into Cole Younger's trial, you know, Cole Younger was the co-leader of the James Younger gang. And and they were a united front and a united team. I mean, they made all these great records together. They toured the world uh, several times together. And there's one story in particular about an incident, I believe, in Toronto in 1965. It was definitely in Ontario, if it wasn't Toronto. And uh, they usually had a decoy limo or something to distract the fans so they could get away. But in this instance, the chauffeur kind of froze and the car ended up getting surrounded. And so many girls are climbing on top of the car that the ceiling's buckling. The, the roof of the car is buckling and the stones actually think they're, you know, going to get suffocated. And Brian's in the front seat next to the driver. 
and he slammed the driver into the door of the car and and took the wheel and kicked the driver's feet away from the gas and brake pedal and Keith reached over with his foot and slammed on the gas and ran the gear shift. Um, it was a, it was an automatic transmission, but he still slammed it into drive and slammed on the gas and probably ran over a couple of people. It's known that at least one girl lost some fingers because she was holding onto the fender of the car so hard when they pulled out. Um, but you know, that was a kind of clutch teamwork that they were capable of. They, they'd been in multiple situations where their lives depended on each other and had, you know, mostly come through. In fact, Keith, when he said, when he's talked about Brian's death, he's, he's said kind of regretfully that there was just wasn't anybody there who cared about Brian to take care of him. And the implication being that if Keith had been there, that Brian would have been fine. And that's probably true. Um, but at the same time, like Marianne Faithful said, everybody was so tired of Brian's bullshit that they just, you know, uh, he, he exhausted people, exhausted people's care for him. And the only kind of friendship he could accept was unconditional love and and so he would just compulsively push boundaries but yeah that's just one story but then there's other stories you know like one time on a tour they were in 65 or 66 they're on a pretty small plane and suddenly the plane nosedives and then it roars up you know and and Andy Legoldum and Keith kind of fight their way to the front of the plane that's tilting back and forth crazily and get to the front of the plane and Brian's got a amyl nitrate popper and he's shoved it under the pilot's nose and he's just cackling like a madman um (laughs) so uh that you know that's what it was like being in a band with brian jones and another time they were on a commercial flight and part of the fuselage of the plane blew off and so there's this gaping hole in the plane and it's sucking things out and Brian's fast asleep right next to the hole in the fuselage. And Keith's telling everybody, shh, shh, stop, stop. Maybe you'll get sucked out of the plane. So, um, you know, those guys played hardball. There's really no no other word for it. And Brian was so weak and awful. Even though he started a lot of the trouble, uh, he couldn't hang and, and ultimately was ground to powder. You talk a lot about him having external friends outside of the Rolling Stones. You talked about him walking around with Jimi Hendrix and other rockers. Were they ever afraid at their, the peak of their powers with Brian Jones? Were they ever worried that he would cut out and t- you know take off and do his own thing, maybe with form another band or whatever? Yeah, there was a lot of talk around 65 of him leaving and forming a band. And, and there was talk as, as early as 64, he was talking about putting out a solo single. And that's one of the reasons they stopped letting him talk to the press was, um, because he would just say stuff that was totally untrue. He had, he hadn't even written a song, much less recorded a solo single. At one point he was talking shit about managing the Yardbirds, um, the band that produced Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, although they weren't all in the band together, Beck and Page were, but, um, you know, so, so, there was definitely, and there was a period of time when he was talking about forming a new group with Eric Clapton, uh, Jet Harris, who had been in Cliff Richards' band and then had a solo career on bass, and um, Viv Prince of the Pretty Things on drums. And Jeff Beck, in fact, tried to form that same band with those same two guys. And Viv Prince and Jet Harris were two of the biggest burnouts on the London scene. By you know, in '64 when Brian first became a real full-on alcoholic. These were the guys he was partying with all the time. So it was a terrible idea. It would have would have definitely gone nowhere. But once he met Anita, he put his energies back into the Stones and became a huge influence and dominant player in the Stones again through the aftermath and between the buttons period. And I don't think Anita would have been interested in him if he was struggling to start a new band. And so that was Paul Trinka says that that was kind of his last shot that it, if he if he uh had that he was perfectly capable of forming a band and doing, doing big things, uh, in 65, but by 69, he was, he was, he was shot and, and done for. Last time, uh, in Hawaii, why don't you tell us about why you picked this song for our next cue? Okay. So this is, uh, the last time live in Hawaii in 1966. It's the last concert of their 1966 tour. And I picked it just because, you know, the last time is a riff that Brian wrote and played. And in the 80s, it was commonly attributed to Keith Richards. It's only been since video footage and YouTube. Video footage has resurfaced via YouTube that people have re-acknowledged that it was Brian's 
lick, but I just wanted uh, people to hear what the ferocity of the Stones live in 1966 with Brian Jones on lead guitar. That was the Rolling Stones live in Hawaii doing the last time. Now, going back to other acts out there and him being friends with them, what did they think of him? Because there's lots of comments and quotes from like Ray Davies of the Kinks and things like that. Tell me what other uh, musicians thought of Brian Jones. It's interesting. The ones who've had good things to say about him tended to be the very biggest A-listers like Pete Townsend and he were close friends and Pete's gone and Pete's a big blabbermouth. So Pete's gone on and on about how he and Brian could talk about the spiritual aspects of music and he, he could he could keep up with Pete Townsend on an intellectual level, which is not something that Keith Richards could do. And Pete said, you know, I don't think Keith could even conceive of these conversations we were having about the spiritual spirituality and stuff of, of music. Although Keith obviously can express it. He just expresses it with his guitar, not with his words. Uh, Paul McCartney and George Harrison both had a lot of good things to say about Brian. And one of Paul's not quite autobiographies, but an official biography by Barry Miles, who ironically grew up in Cheltenham with Brian and hated him. Um, Paul tells stories of, you know, doing acid with Brian Jones and watching a litter of kittens being born. And that was one of the most beautiful experiences of his life. And he was really <laughs> honored to share that moment of innocence and beauty with Brian. Um, there's also stories of Paul in a limo with a bunch of people from other bands and they see Brian Jones in his limo and somebody starts slagging Brian that he's a junkie and he's he's getting into hard drugs, which I've never heard. I've confirmed that Brian ever did heroin, but that was the rumor at the time. And Paul jumped down everybody's throat and he's like, you can't talk about me mates like that. And, you know, nobody's going to trash Brian Jones in front of me. John Lennon, on the other hand, said that, you know, Brian started out as a nice guy, no, not a genius or anything. Lennon's standards were pretty high. Um but by the end, it was just, you know, this pathetic voice on the phone that you dread getting phone calls from. Phil May of The Pretty Things uh, loved Brian. And he said, you know, even with a broken arm, he could uh, match Mick and Keith put together. Uh, the the Kinks, both um, Ray and Dave Davies, Davis, um, Ray didn't like Brian at all. He, he thought Brian was the most conceited person he'd ever met. And he put Keith and Mick in that category, too. Uh, um, but he said that. Brian was one of the most compelling stage performers he'd ever seen during the early club days. But Dave loved Brian, and, and the two of them did drugs and drank together and, and also had uh, uh, a lover in common, Zuzu, the Parisian model, and and had talked about having a threesome um, but but with her and the two of them, but it never came to fruition. But but Dave said that, you know, Brian was the true artist in the band and nothing against Mick and Keith, but for his dollar that, you know, Brian Jones was the creative element in the Rolling Stones and brought the magic to it. So that level of rock star seems to have had some admiration for him. But, you know, there's a book by a guy, I think his name's Terry Rawlings, that, that's called British Beat. It's this great catalog of hundreds of bands from Britain in the sixties. And he has a note in there that, you know, the one person nobody had anything nice to say about was Brian Jones. So, um, I think if you were lower down on the food chain, you got, a, a different impression of Brian Jones. You got to see a different side of Brian Jones than, than the side he presented to people like, um, Pete Townsend and Jimi Hendrix. Although there's a horrible story about Brian playing a really cruel prank on Jimi Hendrix's, uh, girlfriend, Kathy, I can't remember her last name, but they were partying in a house that had a big open f floor in the kitchen, you know, with, with broken boards and exposed nails. And Brian put a rug over it and called Kathy over to, and, and she fell through the hole and, and just gashed her calves up badly. And he thought that was hilarious. So that's just the kind of monster he was uh, just switching personality and doing terrible things to people. 
Why did so many people flock to him despite these obvious character flaws? Well, he was a star. I mean, you know, the, the but Rolling I mean, Stones. other stars. It seems like other stars gave him a pass a lot. Well, I think he behaved better around other big stars, and also was a kind of a compulsive ass licker. Andrew Oldham has has described that 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 he, uh, you know, he he went out to dinner with Judy Garland once, and and just by all accounts had a lovely time hanging out with her, which. Um, you know, it was like the least hip person in show business in the late sixties. Um, you know, John Lennon was famously cruel to Judy Garland, like yelling Judy garbage at her to her face and making her cry at one of her shows that Brian Epstein had made Lennon attend. I, I think Brian just behaved better and was charming and talented and beautiful and, and charismatic and, t- you know, uh, exciting, exciting to be around. He, every day he dressed up to the nines, you know, he looked like a rock star at all times. He was kind of the first rock superstar uh, in England. I mean, they'd had, you know, Cliff Richard in the early wave of rockers, but Brian Jones was a new generation that, kind of the first modern rock star in England. And so he had this incredible glamour about him and aura around him and, and uh, people responded to that. And, and, you know, I think that was not good for Brian because he could always find somebody to hang out with and he had no judgment. He was completely weak willed and would go along with anything or lead people into anything. And, and so, you know, Keith Richards said, you know, there was no telling what he'd get into when he'd get out and about because he was intelligent, fearless, heedless, careless, charismatic, curious, you know, very much a seeker. And, 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 you know, there's lots of people, ordinary people that he had seemingly profound, pleasant relations with. Um, and then there's other people, you know, and then typically he would turn on people savagely, uh, that was his MO, but not to, not to everyone. When you meet that many people, you know, as Keith Richards said, Brian was great until you had to work with him. Um, so if you didn't have to work with him, you didn't have that pressure. And, 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 you know, like, uh, Andrew Lou Goldham summed him up as saying, you know, he's like the guy on your football team, meaning soccer, who would come through and score the game winning goal sometimes, but half the time he didn't make it to the game. So it was just a, a you know, C word you couldn't rely on was Andrew Oldham's take on Brian, even though sometimes he, he would come through huge. Um, more often than not, he would let you down. So, you know, that's that's kind of the mystery so, of Brian Jones, I guess. We're getting to our last song here, and that'll wrap us up for this particular part of the story. What was Brian Jones's contribution to satisfaction in total? Uh, nothing, um, on the recorded version at least. They recorded two versions of it, and supposedly the version they recorded in Chicago uh, was acoustic and had Brian's harmonica as the lead instrument. And then they went to L.A., and he didn't show up for the sessions, or at least that's by various accounts. And if he did play anything, it was acoustic rhythm guitar, but I'm pretty sure he didn't play on that song at all. But what we're about to hear is a version from live in 1967 where they segue from a song called Going Home, which features Brian on guitar and is a big, uh, on on the Aftermath album, was like an 11-minute jam. And his harmonic part was mixed way down. And, and, and this is documented. Every time they put out a new mix of the Stones' stuff, Brian's parts get turned down lower and lower. Um, there's versions of, the, of Going Home on Aftermath where his harmonic is quite audible. And then there's other versions where it's buried. But in the live track, He's very dominant on the going home recording. And then they segue right into satisfaction. And he does this incredible feedback harmonica wail at the beginning of the song and, and throughout the song. But you can clearly hear Keith playing a riff and, and Brian doing things on harmonica that sound more like Jimi Hendrix on guitar uh, than anything I've ever heard anybody decide a little Walter doing on harmonica. So this is Satisfaction live in Paris in 1967. And I kind of wanted to pick some of the other songs on this because you can hear him playing lead guitar on Get Off My Cloud and 
19th nervous breakdown. So you can hear that he could still play. And this is after he broke his wrist trying to punch Anita. But this harmonica part is just the craziest, most compelling uh, contribution. And, and the Stones had this feral, wild quality to their live playing in 66 and 67 that I don't think they ever captured again. And that was Satisfaction Live in Paris by the Rolling Stones, live in Paris, 1967, with Brian Jones on a distorted harmonica part. And so that wraps up this episode. We're going to come back and do one more of these. Uh, Steph's going to ask me more questions about his fractious relationship with Andrew Lou Goldham and also about his death at Cotchford Farm. Follow the Literal Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate will return with another Let It Roll nightmare from the vaults. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.